How was everyone? That was so lame. Uh, everyone's still like having their turkey. Uh, there, there you go. That was good. Uh, everyone's still in their turkey comas, ate too much this week, all that stuff. That's good. Okay, um, if you've never been here before, we are in the Gospel of John. Um, hey, I'm really glad you guys are here. It's, uh, you know, we talk about Thanksgiving and, and um, what we're thankful for. I don't know, sometimes I think we take for granted, like, this is a big deal that we get to do this, right? And th- th- that I get to stand up here and openly say, you know, what I believe the Lord wants us to say about the Word of God, and that you can come here freely and receive that and hear that. And this is not a right that people have globally. This is something very um, special to our part of the world. And I think sometimes we really take that for granted, and it's, it's interesting. Um, in the United States, this has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about today, but in the United States, Christianity is on the decline with our amount of religious freedom that we have. And in places like China and Africa, where they are under severe uh, oppression for their faith, the, the Christianity is just exploding, uh, booming, and, and, and growing at rapid, rapid rates. And it's such an interesting thing to think about, that we have, we have taken for granted the simple things. Uh, Hebrew says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Look at how beautiful this is. This is such a, a great thing that we have here. And um, just kind of in the season, I think we sometimes take for granted, this is very special, what we're doing right now. And if you found yourself here, uh, maybe by accident, I don't, which I don't believe in, or chance or any of those things, but if you found yourself in this room, you're here for a reason. You're here because the Lord is going to speak something, not, not because I'm anything special, but because we're going to read His Word today and kind of break apart His Word. God has something very, very special He wants to communicate to us. And that's something else maybe we take for granted, the fact that God still communicates to his people. You guys are awake out there, right? I mean, like, I know, I know, I know Tennessee lost yesterday and that the life is over, but, but I mean, like, we get to do this, and this is a big deal, right? Okay, maybe I'll persuade you before I'm done today. We're in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, okay? Um, We've been studying John for a while. This is the fourth book of the New Testament. You should have a notes handout in front of you. This is what we talked about last week. We've been going under very fundamental, foundational things about our faith, okay? And if you're not a Christian here, it's been a good time to get into John. John's a unique book of the Bible in regards to the fact that it wasn't written for people who had firsthand accounts of Jesus. So it wasn't specifically written to the Jews. It was written to the pagan Romans, the pagan Greeks, people who, who had no idea who Christ was, okay? And so it's a very unique book of the Bible. And so it goes over very fundamental, foundational, basic Things, and that's what we've been talking about. And last week, one of the fundamentals we talked about was that there's nothing you and I can do to earn heaven. Nothing. No matter how hard we work, no matter how good we are, there is nothing that we can do to earn salvation. So what we talked about last week is that we cannot rely on ourselves to be saved. We must reply, rely on what Jesus did on the cross in order to be saved. It's not about our works. It's about us having faith in what Jesus did, his works, okay? Fundamental thing, we're saved by grace through faith, not by our own works, all right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This week, we're going to talk about this. We're going to be honest with ourselves, and and, and we're just going to be upfront, and we're going to have to ask ourselves some hard questions this week. We're going to ask, what are our motives in approaching Christ? Why are we here? Right now, in this room, this very minute, what are we doing? 
Why have we approached the Christian faith? Why are we asking the big questions? Why are we here, okay? Jesus is gonna challenge our motives today, just like he challenged the motives of the people that were following him while he was on earth, okay? So we're in chapter six. Like I said, the fourth book of the New Testament. You should have a notes handout if you don't. If you download the Bible app on your smartphone, uh, it's free, all the notes and everything are on that, on version. We're gonna, over, gonna go over a couple of very famous stories in the New Testament. Even if you're not a Christian in here, you've probably heard the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, okay? So I'm gonna go and uh, we're gonna talk about those stories today and I'll do my best to explain it and try not to keep you guys too long so you can get back to your, uh, your eggnog and turkey. And, um, or that's just me. But uh, yeah, guys, there's a 30-day window to have as much eggnog as we can get our hands on. So we need to make sure we have a sense of urgency during this time of the year, right? Um, Southern Comfort only makes that eggnog for about 40, 30, 40 days. And so I have to consume as much of it as possible. We went through four cartons this week at my house. Um, that's why I'm wearing black. It covers up. Yeah. So, all right. Okay, now that I've made fun of myself, I got your attention. We're going to pray, <laughs> and we'll jump into chapter 6. <sighs> Lord Jesus, God, be patient with me today, Father. Be gracious with me. Lord, I am no one uh, to read your word aloud and to teach your word, God. I am no one. I have not earned that right. I'm not smart enough. I'm not righteous enough. None of that, Lord. Uh, so, Father, please be gracious with me. Lord, I pray, God, that you bless everyone in this room that hears your word today, God. With hearing your word comes a blessing, God. And I just, I pray that you bless everyone in this room. Lord, we pray that you bless every church in our community. God, Lord, advance your kingdom through, through uh, us, Lord, no matter how broken we are, no matter how rivalry and, and jealous we are, God. Lord, work through us, Lord, for the greater good of your kingdom. God, protect my homeless brothers and sisters, God, that are sleeping out in this cold weather, Lord. And uh, keep them safe, Jesus. And um, Lord, let us be benevolent and gracious to them and do everything we can, God, to help them out, Lord, so they're okay. And Lord, God, keep your hand on us. Open up our ears and our eyes, Lord. Let us see and hear what you're doing and challenge us today. Challenge the deepest parts of our heart today, God. Love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm gonna read a little bit. I'll do my best to break it down. It's simple stuff today, but I'll do my best to expound on it. And let's see where the Lord takes us, okay? After this... Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, and a huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. So Jesus went up on a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. Therefore, when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming towards him, he asked Philip, that's one of the 12 disciples, where will we buy bread so these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them just to have a little bit. So one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Okay, so we're going to start off with one of the disciples wants to steal a kid's lunch, all right? Okay, so at this point in Jesus' ministry, this is when Jesus is kind of at the peak of his popularity. Now, let me clarify, peak of his positive popularity. He's going to become more positive, but almost like in an infamous way. They're going to think negatively of him. Right now, he's at his peak. He's drawing 
huge crowds, okay? And we're gonna see that here in a second. Now, the miracle that we're gonna start off with today, the feeding of the 5,000, is probably the most popular miracle in the Bible. It's in all four Gospels. It's the only one in all four Gospels. And at this time, like I said, tens of thousands of people follow Jesus around. Now, when we get into the feeding of the 5,000, that's only calculating the men. It's not including the women and the children. So somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 at the low end and upwards of 20,000 people. So Bridgestone Arena packed out, right? That many people following Jesus to this event that we're going to talk about today. Now, that amount of people that came and showed up, the majority of them came for the wrong reason. Jesus, when he would talk to the crowd, just this is very similar to today, of course, not with you guys, but with other Christians, right? Jesus' emphasis was on faith. Their interest was on personal gain. Jesus wanted to talk about relationship. They wanted to see showmanship. He wanted to talk about relationship. They wanted to see the big show. They wanted to see some miracles, some fireworks, something spectacular. They were focusing on their physical needs, Jesus was trying to focus on their spiritual needs. So what we find is this in the Gospels. Jesus doesn't blatantly ask this question, but he alludes to this question often in the Bible. And it is this, why do you guys want me around? Jesus, in a way, says to the crowds, why did you come here? Why did you want to be in my presence? Why are we doing what we're doing right now? So these people, this group, they were hungry and they were in need. And John mentions, there's this interesting contrast that is still going on in our society. In the city, in Jerusalem, they were ramping up for their biggest festival, the festival of Passover. So in Jerusalem, they're eating too much, they're drinking too much, they're staying up too late, they're indulging themselves in the excesses, right? And then you have this huge group of people who don't have any food. They don't have anything to eat. They don't have anyone to help them at all. And what we see is Jesus has compassion on these people. Even if their motives aren't correct, even if they've kind of made their own bed that they're lying in, Jesus had compassion on the less fortunate. And so what we see in this instance is that Jesus cares about the social gospel. What I mean is this, it is the Christian obligation and responsibility to take care of those in need. The church is to help people who have physical needs. Now that's important, but that's not the whole of what Jesus came to do. More importantly than meeting the physical needs of society, Jesus is clear that he wants to focus on the spiritual needs of society. Paul wrote to Timothy, first and foremost, Christ came to save sinners. So we either go to one extreme or the other. Some churches believe, man, we just got to love people. We need to love them by sharing the gospel with them because spiritual hunger is a much greater problem in our society even than physical hunger. They're both a problem. We both need to deal with them, but it is a spiritual hunger that Jesus really wants to take care of in our culture. And so Jesus has been extremely active. I think it's the Gospel of John, I could be wrong on that, that says that Jesus did so many miracles that if they're recorded, there's not enough books in the world to contain them. So in between these large miracles that we read about, right, in John, the uh, turning the water to wine, the healing the man at Bethesda, the woman at the well, things like that, these, these kind of big miraculous things we talk about, there are all these other miracles that we don't know about, so many of them. So John records the big ones, but in between the big ones, there are these smaller ones. And all these miracles, and it alludes to healing the sick in this one part, in all these miracles, it started amassing Jesus, these huge followings. Just again, tens of thousands of people. 
And because there was people around him all the time, Jesus had to, to, had to really work to have personal time with his disciples. Now, let me mess with the modern-day church model. In modern-day Christianity, we think that speakers and leaders are to speak to these huge crowds, and that's not that that's a problem. I mean, we have a good big crowd in here today, but Jesus wanted to really focus on a specific crowd, 12 individuals. Now, here's the reason why. There's a misinterpretation that we, that we have from the Gospels. When Jesus said, you're going to do greater miracles than me, you know you're not going to do greater miracles than Jesus. That's a misinterpretation. You cannot be killed and resurrect yourself from the dead and do something greater than Jesus. That's not what Jesus was talking about. When Jesus said you're going to do greater miracles than this, Jesus focused in on Israel, a little 200-mile piece, uh, uh, piece of land. The greater than me thing that he was talking of is, is he was priming his disciples to go and take the gospel to the entire globe. So that greater than what I'm doing thing that Jesus said wasn't talking about the miraculous. The greater miracle was you're going to take what I taught you in this little zone of space and spread it to the entire world. So Jesus made it a point to really invest in those 12. And so as he was investing in his 12, right, he escaped to a mountainside. He looked out and he saw all these people coming over the hill. All these people who were hungry and they wanted to be with Jesus. And though they were invading his personal space and his personal time, the gospels say that he had compassion on them. He knew that they needed him. He knew that they were hungry. Even if their motives were bad, he knew that they needed his help. So he sees all these people coming, right? And Jesus is sitting there with his 12. He looks over at Philip and he says, hey, Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? Where are we going to go? What bread shop is big enough, right? Is there a Dunkin' Donuts close by? What are we going to do to make sure that all these people have something to eat? And now Philip responded how a lot of us would respond. This was a test of faith. Philip had seen Jesus do all these miracles, so maybe he should have been thinking a little bit more outside of the box. But he says, man, this is essentially what Philip says. He goes, Jesus, it would take a year's salary just so each person could get a bite. So think in our, in our, in our current day... Jesus, it's going to take $50,000 or $60,000 just to make sure everyone has a bite. And we don't have that kind of money. That's essentially what he was saying. And so Philip was kind of contained to his own resources and their resources. And Andrew was thinking outside of the box a little bit. I wrote Drew because I think when I get to heaven, I'm going to be on this name basis with everyone. I call Nicodemus, Nick, Daniel, Dan, Andrew, Drew. I just, you know, we're brothers in Christ. So anyways, so Drew didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to do it, but he's like, well, I saw a boy who had some, some fish and he had some bread. Whenever we hear this story when we were kids, at least I did, I thought like, you know, like this kid showed up with like these award-winning like bass or something, these huge fish. When you go to study it, the kid probably just had sardines. So these weren't like big fish. These were like little bitty fish. And so the best Drew could come up with is, well, maybe we can break this up and feed maybe, you know, I don't know, 10 or 15 people. Maybe we can do that. What we're seeing, though, is this. There's this huge setup for something great that's going to happen. There's this teachable moment that Jesus is using where he's going to prove to everyone, not just his disciples, but everyone, that Jesus is sufficient even when times are confusing. And he's also setting up a miracle to show that even greater than meeting the physical needs of the crowd, Jesus aims to meet the spiritual needs of the crowd. He's setting this up, okay? Now let's see where this goes. Then Jesus said, have all the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed the, those to, to them that were seated. 
so also with the fish as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five loaves and the leftovers that they had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this really is the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus knew that they were, they were coming to take him by force and make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Okay? So, here's something huge in this part. Jesus had this enormous group of people, right? Again, think of the Bridgestone Arena just filled up, right? He had these 20,000 people or so sit down, and he grabbed the lunch from this kid, right? They took this kid's lunch. He gave thanks to God, and then he started walking around, and he started distributing the bread. Now, what we see all throughout the Bible is that God uses things that are seemingly insignificant to us and does something amazing with it. In the Old Testament, he would use wooden staffs. He used a donkey bone at one time. He used a slingshot from a kid named David and used these very insignificant things. And now he's using this boy's modest lunch. And what we see is this. This is so important. That what humans think is useless, God makes into something important. What we see as not being enough or insufficient or useless or something that is insignificant, in God's hands, it becomes extremely powerful. It becomes extremely useful. It becomes significant. And so they started distributing the food, right? Imagine if you're in the back and you know that they're just starting off with a couple of baskets and there's only five loaves of bread and a couple of sardines in there. And then they get through the first row, right? And they start working on the second row and you're in the back and you're like, what is going on? And the disciples break up and they start distributing as much as they wanted. It said until people were full. So they might have gone around a couple of times and people are like, whoa, I've had enough. And so people were watching this and everyone ate so much food that they had to stop. And then Jesus says, gather the leftovers, get what people could not eat so that nothing is wasted, right? Jesus wants us to clear our plates, right? So he says, get whatever is left and we'll put it in some baskets. And it seems like Jesus was kind of communicating a message. I'm here to do more than just temporarily feed you or just get you fed enough. I'm going to give you so much that there's going to be an excess. I'm going to give you so much that it's going to bleed onto your children and your workplace and your family. Do you guys see where I'm going with this? That he fills us up so much metaphorically that the Holy Spirit comes out of us and that the bread of life and the living water that God puts into us affects those around us, so much so that there's some left over. And so there's symbolism in the leftover food. It's not an accident that there were 12 baskets left over. This is the Jewish people that he's ministering to. Jesus only ministered to the Jews. So he's talking to the Jewish people. There's 12 baskets left over. There are 12 tribes of Israel. And so what he's saying by having 12 baskets left over is he's saying, I care about all of you, every single tribe, every single tongue, every single nation. He's saying, I care for all people. The Bible says that it is God's will that none should perish, that all should have everlasting life, that everyone has the opportunity to be fed by God. So the fact that there were leftovers showed that Jesus's provision is more than enough. It's not just enough, it's more than enough. It can sustain us. There will be leftovers, like I said earlier, to affect the people around us. So in the Bible, if you study the Bible a lot, food often represents something greater than food. Many times in the Bible, food and water represent a greater need. Go back a couple of chapters in John, right? 
Jesus is talking to a woman at the well and they're talking about water, but they're not talking about water. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. She's thinking water, physical water, and he's thinking, I'm not talking about that kind of water. I'm talking about living water. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit in you. In this chapter, he talks about bread. The people are thinking loaves of bread. And as we get to chapter, the second part of chapter six next week, he's talking about a bigger kind of bread, the bread of life, the kind of bread that if we eat it, we are sustained forever. He's talking about himself. So listen, God works miraculous things for us physically. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who, who is sick is always going to be healed. That's a, that's a whole other conversation for another time. But the fact that we have blood coursing through our veins right now is quite miraculous. The fact that we can breathe right now is quite miraculous. If you've ever studied biology, if you've ever watched your, your wife give birth to your children, it's the most miraculous and kind of gross, but it's also extremely miraculous. And when you watch that, and if you don't think that God does miraculous things, watch, watch your child being born. I remember it was still when uh, Baptist Hospital was Baptist Hospital in, in uh, Nashville and West End. We had our first, and Aya was born. And they cleaned her up. And, and, you know, of course, I sat there for a second. I went downstairs to the chapel, man, and just laid on the floor and just bawled my eyes out. It's miraculous. So God aims to take care of us physically how he sees fit. But he also wants us to let down our guards so he can really get to where he wants to get to. And that is our spiritual malnourishment. That's where he really wants to get. Beyond our physical body, he wants to get to our mind and our heart and our soul. And that's what he really wants to work with. So again, if you were a part of this huge crowd, if you got any food, you could not deny the miracle. And the crowd could not deny it. So they acknowledged, they said, that is the guy. Moses talked about him. The other prophets talked about him. This is our new Moses. This is the one that we've been waiting for. He is the prophet. And what it says is they wanted to take him by force and make him their king. Jesus didn't come to be that kind of king. They wanted to make him a political revolutionary. <laughs> See if this sounds familiar. These people who are following Jesus wanted to force him to be a political figure to decimate the people that did not believe like them. That's what they wanted out of them. Get rid of the Romans. Destroy the Romans. Take away our oppressors. Listen, Jesus didn't come to destroy anyone. He came to give the opportunity to everyone, regardless of where they are right now, socially or belief-wise. He gave everyone the opportunity to turn to him and be saved. Jesus didn't come into the earth to start condemning and zapping with lightning bolts. He came in to give the opportunity that all should have the, the chance to not perish. That's why he came. So he wasn't going to conform to what these people wanted him to be. So he split. They wanted to make him into a politician. Jesus didn't want to be a politician. He didn't want to conform to the desires of people. They wanted to worship him. But the only reason why they wanted to, wanted to worship Jesus is they saw benefit in worshiping Jesus. There was something in it for them. So their motives were bad. Their motives were selfish. Listen, they were actually satanic. Corey, that's extreme. Well, if you go back into Matthew 4, this kind of praise and adoration was offered to Jesus by the devil. He's out in the wilderness and Satan says, hey, if you'll just bow down to me, I'll make you really popular. Jesus says, no, that's not what I want to do. And he quotes the Bible to Satan. So what that shows us is this, guys, look, we're going to talk real about us. We need to be careful that when people start praising us, we need to step back and check ourselves. We need to step back and make sure, whoa, wait a second. I don't need to be reading my own press. I don't need to be receiving all this praise. I need to deflect that 
to Jesus Christ. He's the only one that deserves praise. And if we're not careful, we will start feeding off of that popularity. We're a culture that values ourselves based on how many likes we get on Facebook. And I don't even mean that as a joke, guys. And I'm guilty of it too. Man, no one's liked my pictures in a long time. Better throw a picture of my kid on there, right? Get 4,000 likes. Ooh, people still love me. That's what we do. And we value ourselves based on the praise of people. Guys, and that is dangerous. And I would even argue it's somewhat demonic. There is something evil about that. And Jesus kind of, he split when people started to make him into something that he didn't want to be. So here's what we learned. And there's just a section that we covered. We have learned that Jesus does not come on my terms. And Jesus does not come on your terms. Jesus came to expose to us the soul-saving light. Jesus came to be a spotlight on the darkness. He did not come to conform to our dark paths. He did not come to conform to me. He came with the opportunity for me to conform to him. Now, did Jesus come to give us things? Of course he did. He came and he said, as he's washing his disciples' feet, he said, I didn't come for you to serve me. I came to actually serve you. Now, the problem with that is this. He knows what we need. We're so quick to say, Jesus, I need this and this and this. He knows what we need. My kids come up to me all the time and say, we need to eat like chocolate right now. And I'm like, no, you don't need to eat chocolate. You need to eat vegetables or you're going to die. So we often, (laughs) right? We can't live on eggnog alone, children. (laughs) And so just like a good parent, we, we, we petition Jesus with all these things we need. And Jesus says, I know what you need. I know what you need. That's why I came, to give you what you truly need. The other thing is this. We've learned that if we approach anyone, not just God, if we approach anyone trying to see what we can get out of the relationship, that is not love at all. That is making someone into a commodity. That is not love. If you want to know what love is, 1 Corinthians 13 gives us a really good snapshot of what true love is. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not self-serving. And so when we go on and read what love is, whenever I go into a relationship, I didn't marry my wife. I'm like, hmm, she's attractive. We can have sex with each other. She can make me dinner sometimes. She can work and help contribute to the bills. Yeah, this, this is a really good, this is a good business move for me to marry Alicia, right? If I'm lucky, I'll get a couple of kids and they can also serve me and I can benefit from that too, right? That's not why we get into relationships. But oftentimes we get into a relationship with God saying, man, if I follow Jesus, I can get this and this and this and this. If I'm extra good, because we think he's like Santa Claus, right? If I'm extra good, I can get this and this and this and this. And that is not love. That's making a commodity. That's cheapening our relationship with God. Okay, last part. This is good stuff right here. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. Then a high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. After they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was on the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd had stayed on the other side of the sea, knew that there had only been one boat. 
They also knew that Jesus had not boarded that boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had ate the bread and the Lord gave thanks, where the 5,000 were fed. When the crowd saw that Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into their boats, went across the sea to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I assure you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and you were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Okay, so here's what happened, right? So after this huge crowd of people wanted to you know, make, take him by force and make him into something he wasn't, Jesus slipped away from the crowd. Now what it says, not in John, but in Matthew and Mark, it says that Jesus sent his disciples away. Jesus needed some alone time. And there's a lesson in that. Guys, every single one of us in the room, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a CEO or you're a school teacher or whatever the case may be, every single one of us in the, in the room need to make it a priority to be alone with the Father. You need to meditate on God. You need to pray, read the Word. All of us need to make it a priority to have some alone time with God, okay? So Jesus sent away the 12 so he could have some alone time, right? The 12 got into a boat. They traveled about five miles, or it would have been about five miles across the Sea of Galilee from one section to Capernaum. Now, several of the men were fishermen, so sailing, no big deal for them, right? They'd probably been across that sea a hundred times, not a big deal. But it was getting dark, and the waters were extremely treacherous, and even for a skilled sailor, skilled fisherman, this would have been kind of a scary situation, right? So, Christ knew that the 12 needed to learn a lesson, <laughs> and so he sent them out on this boat. He caused the storm to happen because Jesus controls the elements, right? And he was going to teach them a lesson because they had issues with faith and they had issues with fear. So he's going to teach them a lesson in trust. And as they got to the middle of the sea, the waves grew, the wind grew, it was dark, and because of all these things, their fear also grew. Now listen, at the peak of their fear, at the pinnacle of their turmoil, when the storm was raging as hard as it was going to rage, when it was as dark as it could have got, it's when they saw Jesus. It's when they saw Jesus. And they were scared at first, but then he identified himself as the Savior. Do you guys see the metaphor in there? That at the peak of the storm, they see Jesus and Jesus said, I'm the only thing that can help. I'm the only thing that can save you. So they invite him in to the boat. Once they understood that that was Jesus, they knew the only solution to the storm, it was extremely simple. The miracle of Jesus standing on the waves revealed not only that Jesus had authority over the elements, the wind, the water, the sea, all this stuff. He had authority over all that. It also shows his purpose for even coming. Jesus came to calm the storms of humanity. He came to bring order to the chaos. And they recognize that in order for the storm to be calmed, we have to invite Jesus into the situation. We have to invite him into the boat. If we don't, he's going to walk on by and we're going to have to deal with the storm by ourselves. So we have to call him in and invite him into the situation. Maybe the most important slide I will show you today if you're a note taker, make a star or circle it or do something, however you remember. People often ask, how are we saved or how do we know that we're saved? This is a good barometer. 
in order to be saved from our storms, which is life in general, right? To find calm in the storms, we must first intellectually acknowledge our condition. We must use our brain and acknowledge the fact that we are screwed up. There is something wrong with us. We are deficient. We are inadequate. We are less than what we should be. That without help, we are lost. We are in a storm. Once we realize that with the brain that God has given us, the second thing is to then apply the Savior, Jesus, to our lives. How do we do that? We do that through confessing our sins and our insecurities and our faults by repenting, which means we ask for God's forgiveness for those things. That's not the end of it. Then we have to take the steps to turn away from those things. Guys, if it was enough just to have an encounter with Jesus, Jesus wouldn't have went back and hunted, hunted down the invalid from last week or two weeks ago and said, do not sin anymore. It was important to Jesus that we change the way we think and act. We acknowledge we're broken. We apply Jesus to our lives through confession and repentance. And then we have to be committed to not just inviting him once, but all throughout our lives, inviting him into our boat, inviting him into our lives. How do we do that? So simple. We pray, we read the word of God, and we are obedient to what the word of God says. Corey, my marriage is falling apart. What should I do? Read the word of God, pray, and apply what you've read. Corey, we're financially in ruins. What do we do? Pray, read the word of God, and apply what it says. Corey, I'm struggling with these addictions. I'm struggling with these insecurities. I'm struggling with anxiety and fear and depression. What do I do? Pray, read the word of God, and apply it. Whatever your problem is, these three things are the catapult, the launching point, the, the thing that accelerates us into finding comfort, finding peace, finding joy in life, and having a relationship with God. To think that we can be Christians without praying, reading, and being obedient is ludicrous. It is ludicrous. And to say that we are saved without inviting the Savior in is ludicrous. It is ludicrous. This is how we are saved. This is how the storm is calmed in our life. And when they did this, when they invited him in, it says that the, the, the situation immediately changed. I love studying what other theologians have written. I'm not a theologian, but I love studying what theologians have written. And a lot of theologians, it's funny to me, they say, we know Jesus walked on the water, but the idea that right when he got on the boat, that the boat in, you know, miraculously ended up on shore, that's crazy. I'm like, he was walking on water for God's sake, right? I mean, like, he can make the boat show up on shore. Some people just said it was a figurative thing. It was just like time flew by. Whether it's literal or whether it's figurative, the point is this. Jesus was there to save and comfort. Jesus was there. And even if we invite Jesus in and the storm is still raging, listen, if we are tethered to the strong tower if we are tethered to the immovable rock that is God, not only can we weather the storm, eventually the storm will pass and the outcome will be different. The storm will not overtake us. Are you guys awake out there? Okay, good. And so they get to the other side, right? Jesus gets to the other side and people are waiting for him. All these droves of people are just like, wait a second. There was only one boat and Jesus, you weren't on that boat. How did you get here, right? And they're confused. He just fed 5,000 people with a couple of, you know, loaves of bread and some sardines. But the fact that, you know, he somehow miraculously got to the other side of the sea blew their minds, right? And so again, what we see is this. 
These people had false motives. They had bad motives. We don't know exactly what they were wanting, but were they just wanting more food? Were they wanting again to try to persuade Jesus to be their political king, their political leader? Why were they there? We know they weren't there for good motives because Jesus calls them out on it. And what we find out, listen, there was probably 20,000 people in this one area that he fed, right? A bunch of them traveled over and met another huge group of people. So there's no telling how many people are there. So these two crowds were combined But they weren't combined hunting Jesus down because they had serious theological questions. Imagine if you knew that Jesus was God, right? You're there. You're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. You're in Capernaum. You know that this guy is God wrapped in flesh, right? The firstborn of all creation, the one that spoke the universe into existence. He's he's standing right in front of you. And all you're concerned about is, man, I hope we get another free meal out of this. Man, I hope that he will be our political leader. I hope that he'll get rid of the Romans. Heck no. If you have God right in front of you, those of us that genuinely love God, you want to ask him questions. Tell me about what it was like to create the universe. Tell me what it was, tell me what it was like. What's it like in heaven right now? What's it like? You would ask him deep things. Tell me about the Trinity. How does that work? The Father, Son, and Spirit, that you're all one and three. And how does that work? You'd want to ask deep theological things. But that was not their concern because they were selfish. They didn't care about Jesus so much. They just cared about what they could get from Jesus. So Jesus could read their thoughts, right? He knew their motives. And he essentially answers a question like other times he's done that they didn't ask. And the question that was on the majority, not everybody, but the question that was on the majority of the people's minds were, can we get what we want out of Jesus? We came here to church, right? Can't I get what I want out of Jesus? And that's what they were asking. So he proceeds to talk to them about that. And he finishes up this part we're going to study today with this. He says, you guys are working for the wrong things. People haven't changed much, have they? Jesus told the greedy and misdirected group of Christians, people who are following Jesus, right? He says, you guys are working so hard for stuff that's just going to go away. Guys, if we're fasting and praying, and I'm not saying you don't need these things, But if we're fasting and praying for a brand new car, Jesus would say, guys, the value of that's just gonna go down. If you wanna fast and pray, fast and pray for your family. Fast and pray for your marriage. Fast and pray so our relationship can grow stronger. Fast and pray for world hunger to be relieved or for peace on earth or pray and fast for something that is eternal, something that is huge and significant, not for things that are just gonna fade away. Does God know we need transportation? Of course he does. But he's saying, you guys are working so hard for things that don't really matter, and you should be working harder for things that are eternal. And like many of us today, including me at times, they followed Jesus for what they could gain. They followed Jesus to justify their lusts and their desire and their greeds. They followed Jesus to support their political view. They followed Jesus to confirm their culture or affirm what they wanted. God, I believe this. You believe it too, right? Right? I can twist and turn this enough to get you to agree with me, right? And so they use Jesus as kind of something to wield for their own gain. Okay, so this is how they approached him, this crowd in this story. So if they approached him in the wrong way, it, it would be a good idea for us to ask, how and why do we approach Jesus? Now, this is not exhaustive, and I'm going to put a little uh, uh, preface on this. I, I might get a little heated about some of this. But how do we approach him? The first thing is this. 
We must understand that Jesus does not change. If we're going to approach Christ in our day and age, Jesus does not change because culture says so. Now, let me tell you what's going on right now in Christianity, and not on a small scale, on quite a big scale. Right now in Christianity, what we are doing, I'm not talking about non-believers, I'm talking about believers. We are reading the Bible, and there are parts of the New Testament that we do not like. There are parts that contradict our sexual preferences or our sexual acts or our greed or all these different things, and we don't like those things when the Bible tells us not to be drunkards or it tells us to be sober or whatever the case may be. So we are starting to edit parts out that are not socially acceptable. They're not politically correct. So we are editing those parts out. Now, most of the parts of the Bible that we tend to edit out were written by the Apostle Paul, okay? Most of them. Other writers of the New Testament have said very, con uh, 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 very controversial things, but when it comes to modern day society, the Apostle Paul is the one that really upsets people, okay? 1 Corinthians, Romans, Timothy, different passages like that that really offend culture right now. So what we're doing is we're removing Paul. Now, the problem with removing Paul, besides the fact that he wrote 65% of the New Testament, the problem with removing Paul is this. St. Peter said in one of his epistles, do everything that Paul commands you. Here's the problem. So if we remove Paul, then we have to remove Peter because Peter affirmed Paul. Now, the problem with that is this. Jesus chose Peter to hand the keys to the kingdom to. So if you remove Paul, you have to remove Peter, then you have to remove Jesus. Do you see the slippery slope we go down when we start dissecting this thing based on our cultural beliefs? Please tell me you guys are listening to me today. When we start picking this thing apart, it is a very dangerous thing that we are doing. Jesus does not change. He was the same when he created the foundations of the earth. He was the same when he was walking around on planet earth. And he's the same right now. He does not change. Jesus also does not contradict his word. He can do anything he wants, but he is bound because he chose to be by his word. He made a covenant, a promise, and he will not break that. So guys, I'm going to hurt your feelings today. And I'm not trying to say this to be mean, but people will come into my office. Corey, I'm going to divorce my wife. We're just not getting along with each other. God told me to do it. He said, it's okay. Really? Let's go back to Matthew 7 and let's talk about that. Let's go back to some other parts where it talks about marriage and let's see if those are grounds for you to get divorced. Let's, let's check in on that. Now that contradicts what the Lord said, so I don't think the Lord told you that. Maybe your friend that you probably don't need to hang out with, he might have told you that. Maybe the devil told you that. Maybe you wanted to hear that, but that wasn't the Lord because it contradicts his word. Oftentimes, hey, Corey, we can have sex before marriage because we're married in God's eyes. You laugh. I've heard that one six billion times. We're married in his eyes. Well, let me go back to the scripture and let's see what that means. Let's dissect that and let's see what the Lord has to say about that. Now, if the Lord told you that's okay, again, that contradicts his word. That's not the Lord. You're, uh, never mind. Um, move on, right? No, I was going to say something dirty. No, let's, let's, let's go on. <laughs> the other thing is this. When we approach Jesus, how we approach Jesus, we must approach Jesus if we choose to do, to do so. To choose Jesus is to choose to conform to him. It is not to get him to conform to our personal beliefs and our standards. It is not for us to do that. We don't approach him saying, hey, I believe this. Can I wrap your beliefs around my beliefs? Can we do that? That's not the way God works. 
how we approach him is approaching him, believing his word, regardless of what we think. Now, whenever people come up to me and they say, Corey, what's your opinion on this? My opinion is convoluted by my broken, sinful nature. My opinion is convoluted by my uh, uh, lack of good judgment and my sin and all these things. So don't trust my opinion. Let's go to the Lord's opinion. It's not convoluted with all those things. It is perfectly righteous, right? It is perfect. And so let's go back to his opinion. So when I approach God, I have to go not with my stereotypes or beliefs. I have to conform to his. I have to conform to his. Another way that we approach him is we have to approach him with humility. Something we are missing in modern day Christianity. I'm not trying to make fun of you if you do this. But we say, man, God is Papa, Abba, Father. He just wants to cuddle with us and roast marshmallows. That's, that's all God wants to do. He just wants to cuddle with us. He's my, he's my Papa, Daddy. And we talk in this lingo sometimes. And don't get me wrong. Like, he is your dad. He is your Papa. He's your Abba, as the, as the Bible says. He is that one that holds you and cuddles you and, and loves you like a good father should. There's another side of God, though, too. Revelation 4, he sits on a throne. He sits on a throne and it says his eyes are like lightning and his voice is like roaring oceans and thunder. He is also the one that spoke the universe into existence. And guys, as, as much as he loves to coddle us, there's also a reverence and a fear that we are to have of the King of Kings. Corey, how dare you? Because Solomon said the beginning of all wisdom starts with a proper fear of the Lord. Well, that's an Old Testament thing. Jesus said, do not fear the one that can take your literal life, but fear the one that can cast your soul into hell. He was referring to himself. The proper fear of the Lord is a biblical thing all throughout the Bible, and we have lost that reverency. So listen, when we approach Jesus, we approach him with boldness, knowing that he loves us, but we also approach him with reverency because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's how we approach him, okay? So how we approach him, we just talked about. Now let's talk about why. Why do we even want to do this? The first thing is this, why we approach him, do we want God's will? I'm talking about me right now. I've often approached Jesus saying, God, I want these things. And I've changed that over the last couple of years. Even if I pray for you and you are sick, even if you're suffering through something, even when you're suffering through something, I say, God, if it's your will, touch the situation. You know why I do that? There's a really bad theological perspective that God never wants us to suffer. I have a lot of theological issue with that. And the biggest one is this. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, he looked up to the father and he said, father, if it be your will, let this cup of suffering pass from me. And it was not God's will. It was God's will that Jesus suffer. Sometimes it's God's will that we suffer. Sometimes it's God's will that we go through storms because there's lessons to be learned in storms. There's character to be developed in storms. He refines us through heat to make us come out like pure gold. So whenever I pray now, I say, God, if it be your will, if it be your will, do this. If it be your will. God, you know what I want, but if it be your will. So my motive, your motive must be to seek out the Father's will. We have to want the Father's will. Another reason why we need to check our motives is a lot of us are just seeking affirmation for our sins. We're trying to look out Jesus and seek out Jesus and seek out the word so it can somehow justify something evil that we're doing. <laughs> you know the Bible doesn't specifically mention methamphetamines, right? But it's a sin to do meth. 
The Bible doesn't specifically mention weed. It's a sin to get high and smoke weed. I know that's really offensive right now because we're a nation that wants to make ourselves stupider. But it is a sin to be intoxicated. Does it specifically mention weed in the Bible? No. Is it from the earth? I love this argument. So is poison ivy. Roll that up and smoke it, right? It's also from the earth. Knock yourself out, right? There's some red berries on these bushes outside of the church. From the earth. So how do we know that doing meth and smoking weed are wrong? We know because the Bible says at least, there's at least 50 times that I can think of. I don't know them all by heart, but I counted earlier today how many scriptures mention that we are to be sober-minded. And if you're smoking weed and not getting high, you're not smoking very good weed, right? (laughs) So I've been told. And so... (laughs) My mother's watching this right now in St. Louis, right? I'm so red right now. I can feel the heat on me. What I'm saying is this, though. Does it specifically mention those things? And people try to twist and turn and manipulate and bastardize the Bible in such a way to get it to affirm things we're doing wrong. But if you really know God's heart and if you really study at the Bible, there is a reason why over and over and over again, the Bible says to be sober-minded. Here's why. Because Peter said, the devil is like your adversary, is like a roaring lion walking around looking for your guards to be down. And when your guards are down mentally and emotionally, That's when the devil slips in. And that's when horrible things happen. If you want to really get deep into it, study the occult and study how many hallucinogenic drugs go along with Satan worship because it opens up the door for demonic things to come in. So try to justify to me that being intoxicated by weed or anything is okay and all I have to do is go to the word of God and prove you wrong. But if our motive is to seek affirmation for what we want, and the sins that we commit, that is wrong. That's a bad motive. Or are we willing to conform to his standards? Like I said, my standards are broken. The Bible says my standards are like filthy rags. I won't go into detail on what kind of rags he was even referring to. But my, my standards are broken and messed up. It's his standards that we want to conform to. It's his righteousness. It's his idea of culture. That should be our motive. And when we approach God, when we approach Jesus, are we looking to know him? If we are, guys, this takes work. When you get married, getting to know your spouse takes work. You have to go on dates. You have to be romantic. You have to be intimate. You have to have conversation. You have to do things together. It's the same way with God. Are we willing to put the effort into getting to know him? You're not going to get to know him in one church service or one prayer. It is a lifestyle. It is an ongoing thing to get to know the Lord. Now, here's the last one. And this is a question, guys. This is where we got to be extremely honest with ourselves. I love talking about heaven. I love it. If you go into the back of Revelation, I've taught Revelation a couple of times. I'd love to teach it again, but Corey Drake just ruined that. He's been teaching it to the students, so I'm not going to do that, but... I love Revelation. When you get to the end of Revelation, it's very specific about what heaven's going to look like. And so we get an idea to the best of our imagination's ability to kind of understand what heaven looks like. God is going to wipe away the old heaven and the old earth. He's going to create a new earth, right? And it says that we don't go up to heaven. I don't know if you knew that. Heaven comes down to us. 
So we're going to be on this new earth in this new Jerusalem, a new city that's going to be gold, right? Pure gold, clear enough to see through. It's going to come down and rest on this new earth. It says that the gates of the city will always be open, which leads me to believe we will get to explore a whole new earth and that there will be this beautiful city that we live in, right? And it says that the gates of the city are made out of singular pearls, these huge pearls. It's quite a clam, right? These huge singular pearls that we go in and there's gonna be a river that goes down the middle and there's trees that grow on the sides of this river of life. The trees produce 12 different fruits for the nation so we'll never die. That at the end of this, that it comes in, that the river goes into the throne of God. And as we go into it, the Bible talks about the foundations of heaven are made out of isotropic stones. I'm gonna get real geeky on you guys for a second. It mentions all the different stones that heaven is made out of, these isotropic stones. Now, why is it important to know they're isotropic? Isotropic stones, if you were to take a big isotropic stone like sapphire or something like that, if you were to shine light into that, on the other side comes all the primary colors. So if you take an isotropic stone, think Pink Floyd, right? Dark side of the moon, just to help you guys wrap your brain around it. And if you were to shine light on it, the primary colors shoot out the other side. Now get this, it says in heaven that there is no sun, that Jesus is the light. When Jesus walks around heaven, the city, the light that permeates off Jesus hits these isotropic stones that make up the foundations of heaven. And from all these stones, color just shoots everywhere. Is that not amazing to anyone but me? Imagine the beauty of heaven when we get there. But here's the thing. Max Licato actually said this. It is not the isotropic stones that make up the foundations. It's not the river of life and the trees that produce these fruit. It's not the new earth. It's not the, 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 the gold that is so clear that you can see through it. It's not any of those things. The true beauty of our eternity is we will get to look into the eyes of God. We will get to look in the face of the creator, the architect. We will get to see him and stare at him. And I'll get to ask him whatever questions are on my mind. And we will get back to the original purpose of why God created it all. He didn't create this earth so he could zap us and damn us to hell and tell us what to do. He created this earth so we could enjoy it, so we could walk with him in fellowship. It says that he walked around with Adam. They would shoot the breeze. And he gave, he gave man dominion over the earth. Eat whatever you want. Hang out with the animals. Enjoy yourself. I made this for you. And we will get back to God's original design. But I ask you this. If we were to take away all the gifts of God, if we were to take away all the benefits, if we were to take away all the provision, not just in eternity, but right now, if God never blessed us again, if he never gave us what we wanted, if he never healed us, if he never did any of those things, is just the thought of one day being with him enough? Is that enough? If you were to take away the streets of gold, if you were to take away the pearly gates, if you were to take away the fact that you wouldn't get to see your loved ones again, any of those things, is just getting to be with Jesus enough? Is that our motive for being in this room right now? Are we here just to escape hell? Or are we here because we want to know our Heavenly Father? Because we want to look into the eyes of God. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I'll confess to all you guys, I have followed Jesus before out of, a, out of an unhealthy fear. 
I have followed Jesus before because I have sinned and done things wrong and I felt shame and guilt and I wanted him to relieve me of that and that's okay. It's okay. I mean, he wants to relieve you of your shame. He wants to relieve you of your guilt. I initially got into a relationship with Jesus not because I necessarily even loved him, but I'd lost everything and I was desperate. But over time, I can honestly say that, that, that above all things, I just want to be able to look at him. I just want to be able to wrap my arms around the one that died for me. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. I want to be able to ask him crazy questions. I want him to, I want him to show me what deep space looks like. I want him to show me what it looks like when he created everything. I want to see those things. I just want to talk with him. And I ask you guys, deep down, if you're just being brutally honest with yourselves, why are you here today? What made you come in? Do you want to know your maker? Do you want to know your creator? Do you want to know your heavenly father? And if that's not why you came in here, maybe there are other motives. It's as simple as, guys, we can just ask for forgiveness. God, forgive me that I've been selfish. Forgive me that I've thought just about me. Forgive me, God, that I haven't put you first. That it's not about just what I can get, God, it's what I can give to you. I know he doesn't need anything from us, but we want to give him our time. We want to give him our love, our attention, our adoration. So if you're in here and you're not a believer, all I ever ask of you guys, if you're not a believer, is just to have enough courage to, if you're looking for the truth, close your eyes and with an audible voice just say, God, if you're up there, send someone to me. God, if you're up there, give me, give me some kind of feeling or emotion or sign or something. And I believe God will do something for you if you're really looking for the truth. If you're in here and you're a believer and you have any prayer request, up here to my left, there are people that can pray for you. If you come up here to my left, you're right. If you have a prayer request for anything, I don't care what it is, anything in your life that you need, let some brothers and sisters, let them pray for you and hold that up for you. Help you share some of that burden. If you're in here and you've asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, if you've repented, God forgive me, you're welcome to take communion all the way around on all the tables with the lamps on them. And we can remember that Jesus came, bled, died, and rose again. So one day, we don't just inherit a beautiful city and a new earth. We inherit God. We inherit a relationship with him. We inherit the opportunity to get to meet him. We are truly blessed that we have the chance, we have the opportunity to get to know the Creator. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. Father, I pray right now, God, as we go into this season that, Lord, so many people have made so selfish, so many people have made it so much about gifts and so much about themselves. God, in this season, as we go into this season, Lord, let us remember the giver of the gifts. Let us remember the source of all joy. At the risk of sounding cliche, God, Lord, let us remember the reason for the season, Lord. Let us remember why we're doing this. Not for the gifts, but for the giver. Not for the creation, but for the creator. 
Lord, set our motives right, God, and help us, Lord, and forgive us and walk with us, Lord. We love you. We thank you, Jesus. Bless my brothers and sisters, God, and protect them until I see them again next week. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. I love you so much. I hope you have a great week.